Hello and welcome. You are listening to the Health Query Podcast, where we cover a full spectrum of well-being. From doctors to dominatrixes, we delve into the many realms of mental, physical, sexual, emotional, and spiritual health. My name is Allison Schulte, and I have been integrating body, mind, sex, and spirit for over 25 years in medical, academic, nonprofit, and community spaces. I am a sex witch, and I am also the CEO for Pelvic Sanctuary. We are a Los Angeles-based nonprofit that is dedicated to pelvic health education, and we focus on the needs of LGBTQIA plus populations. And we do this through virtual and in-person workshops, classes, and training programs. So if you want to learn more about that and how to support us, you can go to pelvicsanctuary.org. In today's episode, I am talking to Zoe Nissen, she, they, who is a fellow belly dancing librarian. That is a thing. They are also a musician and a writer. Zoe and I got to talking about their orientation as a gray asexual and their experiences dating as they came out to recognize their orientation on the asexual spectrum. It's a fun discussion where we find a lot of common ground, including the lessons learned in intimacy beyond sexual intimacy. Though I'll keep it sexy by including a few funny tales from my youth It turns out that Zoe and I both have a deep love for horses, so we're also talking about some of our time as horse girls and how that passion led to fulfillment, comfort, and a sense of belonging. Lastly, we'll share our belly dance origin stories and the joy and pleasure we get out of it. So Zoe and I met, I think, first at Dance Garden at an event they were having. Yeah, you came to Jelena's like sale, right? Yeah, it was like a flea market for belly dancers. And Dance Garden, it was a important space in the belly dance world in Los Angeles. And then we just started talking and then we ended up in a belly dance troupe together with Laura Lale, who teaches like um, Turkish style, which is very, very hard to find experts in so I was like really excited yeah and then we're in a troupe together and I was like whenever I'm dancing with like a new group of people I'm always like how me do I want to (laughs) be like you know what I mean I'm like how I feel that (laughs) I'm like testing the waters like can I just like I mean, because my first belly dance troupe was Desert Sin. So we were like all over each other. It was like a belly dance fusion dance company where we were doing like goth clubs and stuff like that. And anyways, I was really just glad. Like I just made like a couple like sex jokes or like dirty jokes. And then I realized I was like in very good company. I was like, oh, I can say (laughs) anything. Yeah. So I just feel really relaxed in that group and around you and Laura and everyone. And then we realized that you... We're, we're, we were both horse girls. We were both, I'm a library school dropout, but I've worked enough in library. I've held librarian positions and then both into belly dance and both like really open about sex stuff and both queer. So that was like a lot to talk about. It was so, I was so happy to see you like on the first day of uh, all of Dancy rehearsal. I was just like, oh my God, yes, we get Al. Fuck yeah. <laughs> 
because I had had the same feeling like after the first time I met you I was just like oh I get a good vibe from this person like I hope I get to see them more Yay. and it's it's honestly like the greatest I oh I don't want to say the greatest I, I think I just feel really I've never felt so comfortable in a dance troupe before with everyone so I wanted to interview you you'd told me you were asexual or I don't know how it came up and when we talk about LGBTQIA plus like the I and the A is like really still very excluded and like not talked about enough and I think a lot of people don't even know what the A stands for. So many people think it stands for ally and I'm just like no (laughs) it's not your fucking acronym like. Yeah I don't know where that started or when that started and I'm just doing my research and learning as a healthcare practitioner what that means but how do you define asexuality? So what I really want to preface with this conversation is that I can mainly only talk about my experience as a person on the asexual spectrum, because like, just like with the spectrum of queerness, like asexuality is a spectrum, like some people are asexual aromantic, some people are very romantic, some people are sex repulsed some people and they'll treat it kind of like the way that I treat it is that you know for me sex is a fun hobby that I can pick up and put down I know that there are some people out there who are allosexual which is kind of like the opposite of asexual um, for folks not in the know and allosexual folks like they feel a lack in their life if they don't have sex and I don't really care. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, So like, you know, I have friends who are super into rock climbing and I'll go rock climbing with them because I love them and we have a good time together. I'm not saying that it's like something I hate, but I'm not going to go out and buy my own gear. Right. Like I have other hobbies that are like just for me. So basically the word that I've started to use to define myself is gray asexual, which kind of accounts for all of the ambiguities. And that's something that I've been learning to get really comfortable with I think the past like 20 years of my life is that like things about me are just ambiguous and nebulous and they change and that's fine which is hilarious for somebody who literally catalogs and categorizes things for a living (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah that's also like conversations I've had in the library world is like the issues with gender and sexuality and identity and then profiling and cataloging books is a whole conversation but yeah and I think I mean I think that's the most important thing to know is it's a spectrum or one of the most important things so it doesn't mean that people my understanding again this is my understanding is it it doesn't mean that people don't ever have sex or are repulsed by sex but it can be that you're repulsed by sex but it might be like like how you said Yeah, it just depends on the person. And like, also like attraction can be, like you said, like romantic, it can be cuddling, it can be making out, it can be, I mean, there's so many ways we can connect emotionally and and have intimacy that doesn't involve acts of sex. Exactly. And like where a person defines, like, and this is for even allosexuals as well as like where a person defines like where sex happens is like so personal. Like some people define it completely differently. So, and that's what I think is fascinating just from a like sociological point of view. (laughs) And then there's also like, there's also solo sex or masturbation and Mm -hmm. like 
it doesn't mean that that doesn't happen for people either. And, exactly. Um, like the other thing that I think is important to emphasize is it's not the same as celibacy. Exactly. Yeah. So celibacy is a conscious choice to not engage in sexual activities, regardless of how you feel about them. Asexual is an identity, right? Exactly. It's an orientation, just like heterosexuality and, you know, being queer. And a lot of these things can intersect as well. So, like, if we're going to get down to, like, the nitty gritty nuts and bolts, like, what are all of the words that make you feel comfy as a person? For me, it's, again, because it's so nebulous, I identify as great asexual pan-romantic, genderqueer, but basically I like to use queer as kind of like a catch-all. Yeah. Yeah. I think queer is easier for me too. I identify as like cis femme, but like, I don't know. I have times where I really feel like a dude inside. And like, I, like when we both also grew up in punk rock, that's like another thing we have in common. And it's like, I was always with the guys and like thinking like the guys and acting like the guys but then I feel really femme but I also feel like a drag queen I don't know what that means so I like they or queer and it's something that's nebulous I'm sure that like you've had this experience as well is like because I grew up similarly and I was always like one of the guys man wants to be a cool girl and I'm just like okay let's try and figure out like how much of this is like internalized misogyny and how much of this is like you know gender stuff and it's been interesting like parsing out like okay this is like you were taught to hate yourself (laughs) and this is like no that's that's a comfy thing yeah that is an interesting question so how did you sort of figure out your asexuality what was your journey with that oh my gosh it's been complicated Um, I've known that I was a flavor of queer basically since I knew it was a thing. Um, I remember being like six years old, uh, my best friend who lived across the street's house and she had a TV in her room and it was always playing like whatever, just because like, that's what you could do when you had a TV in your room in 2003. And there was like even the news on and it was covering like a gay pride parade. And she asked me what I thought about that. And I was like, huh, I feel a big connection to these people. Wonder why that is. And then by the time I got into uh, middle school, I started identifying as bisexual because that was the word that like we had at the time for, you know, you're attracted to more than one gender. And I was in a straight passing relationship for most of high school and all of my college years. And I had kind of had to hide the queer part of myself because I was dating a cis man. And basically his understanding was like, oh, if you are bisexual, that means you're going to cheat on me. Um, So I kind of had to hide that part of myself. Oh, yeah, I remember that. (laughs) But as I got into college, I like would test the waters a little bit more with him Mm -hmm. just being like, can't hide this this is who I am and like started when I discovered that pansexuality was my identity I was like oh that's me because being I know some people feel like a connection to the word bisexuality I felt like pansexuality was more accurate to what I was experiencing and we had had a sexual relationship because it again like I had never really thought about it before 
And because I was in this relationship as I was like going through puberty and going through all of my development as like a young human, since I had someone there, I would do that. But it was never something, well, no, that's not true. Um, When I was in that relationship, I was a fairly sexual person. There was incidents when we were teenagers where we got caught um, and then we kind of had to like pump the brakes for a little bit. Um, But once we uh, matured with each other, especially once I got into college, I was like, all right, I'm ready. Let's go. Like, (laughs) but that became like something we were kind of long distance. I was living in Los Angeles. Uh, He uh, was still living in Simi Valley at his parents' house. And that made things really difficult because we would have to navigate like oh, your parents are home, or like, oh, my fucking roommates are here. And, you know, we would kind of try and connect, and then things wouldn't work. And then he was the more sexual one when we were younger, and then I was the more sexual one when we were older, and that just kind of created a mismatch. And, you know, it was something that was difficult to figure out. And that relationship finally ended um, because... The last three years of that, we were just, like, fucking bad to each other. We should have ended it much, much earlier when we were way, way younger, but we didn't because codependency. And after that ended, it was... I was not in a good place. I was going through some very severe mental health episodes. Um, I was very, very sick with an eating disorder. And I kind of, after that, like I had some rebound hookups with buddies that I had and it didn't feel right. So I was like, okay, we're just going to kind of like leave dating and sex to the forefront. Because again, I had to focus on my own recovery as a person. Um, I had to focus on the recovery from that relationship. Um, I had to figure out my eating disorder bullshit. And that took up a lot of my life. And then in 2019, I was like, all right, you know, I've been behavior free from my eating disorder for a couple of years. I feel this kind of like lack in my life. I'm going to try dating again. And it just sucked ass. (laughs) Like I hear people talk about like how they're like, oh, yeah, dating is so hard, blah, blah, blah. But there's like, they still see it as like kind of a fun thing. Like they'll get excited to go on a date with somebody and talk to somebody new. And for me, it just felt like, it felt like work. I went on a couple dates with this girl and we hooked up and like, I kind of felt it, but I, it, it didn't feel authentic. And that's something that I am now realizing as I'm excavating my memories is like, for me, like, sex kind of always felt performative and you know it's some it's not it wasn't something that I would actively think about a whole lot so after that disastrous experience I was just like you know what maybe we're just not gonna do this anymore maybe like we're just not gonna try dating um and I kind of like pushed it to the back of my mind. I was like, no, I'm busy with belly dance. Like I'm working, like I have, you know, two and a half jobs and I have a social life and I, you know, do all a whole bunch of other like creative things. I don't have time. I don't have time. And during the pandemic, when I was alone with myself a lot, that's when I started kind of like teasing out that part of my brain and being like, but what if you did think of yourself as asexual? But like, what if you did? And I had always been like a little bit scared 
of thinking of that because there's just so much shame surrounding it like it makes you feel like oh you're a prude or like you know maybe there's something wrong with your libido and like you just need to fix it um and that's what I was trying to do with dating I was like trying to fix myself and like I started to kind of think about like no what if this doesn't mean that like you're a broken person maybe this just is what it is and that's okay that's safe because yeah it just there's a stereotype about ace people that you know there's i'm gonna i'm gonna show how vain i am right now is like ace people are always portrayed in media not always but they were for a long time as like kind of frumpy prudes and i was like but i'm hot right so <laughs> I was like, no, we're going to try and make this fit. We're going to try and make it work. We're going to be like a hot lesbian who like flex all the time. And I'm just, I'm just not. <laughs> I'm just a hot bitch. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> you're definitely like a sexy asexual, like, and you're definitely not a prude. So it, it's great. You're like this sexy belly dancer. And like, I know like my mind is kind of in the gutter a lot. That's <laughs> why I have to censor myself and like... <laughs> I feel like I can say anything that I'm thinking around you and you and you get it. Which I appreciate. <laughs> yeah, I was just watching that episode of House where there's a there's this awful episode of House, the asexual episode. I was just doing research and it came up as something the asexual community had heavily noted. <laughs> so this couple comes in and they're both asexual and there there is actually a great scene where there's which I sent you where the doctor is like like asking the woman about if she could be pregnant and then she's like, "Oh, it's not possible." And he's like, "I'm sorry, I thought you were married." And she's like, "I am, very happily." And then he's like, "Oh, well, sometimes mar and so, and then he's like thinks she's celibate and then she has to explain that she's asexual and then he's like totally flustered and then He's like, oh, I don't know what box to tick. And that's like actually one of my missions with Pelvic Sanctuary with my nonprofit is to like educate more spaces on like having, you know, creating more forms that have more boxes for people. But then it leads into, so I was like, well, that was cool. You know, they presented a problem that is exists in healthcare. And she explains, she's like, no, I'm not celibate. I'm asexual. It's not the same thing. And I was like, okay, that was good. And then, and then it just go, takes a deep dive down from there. So then House is on this mission to like deprove that this couple could possibly be asexual. And then he was like, he said something about like, oh, like fugly magazine. Like he makes like a ugly joke. And it's just like, no. And then it turns out one of the- it didn't like that is why I had so much trouble. Like, goddamn. It's horrible. <laughs> and then and then the end is that the guy had a tumor that was making him pressing on his pituitary gland or whatever. And then the girl was never actually asexual. She was just pretending to be because she loved him. So the, the end result was like asexuality is not real. <laughs> and like, you know, go check your brain for tumors if you're feeling this way, which is like, right. come on. And I think that's, yeah, I think that's like what a lot of medical professionals are like, oh, it must be hormonal and it must be this. And it's like, like they're, they just, it's just not really like accepted very well. What is your experience? Have you had to bring this up in like healthcare settings? 
So I definitely know for a fact that I was the first uh, gray ace person that my doctor has ever seen because she said so. Luckily, my doctor is awesome. She's the head of gender affirming care at her hospital. So she was just like, oh, okay, I'm going to write that down so I know about it for the future. But when I get asked, you know, like, are you sexually active? I'm just like, can we like define that? <laughs> like, right. what do you mean? Like, what? how active is active? Because <laughs> like, you know, I have been sexually active in the past and I have been act- active with people of all genders. But like, what's what's the threshold? You know, like how how far back are we digging? <laughs> Yeah, and I know that essentially the question they're trying to ask is like, could you possibly be pregnant? Right. But that's, it just brings up a whole other mess of questions. And like, it's confusing for my doctor. It's confusing for me. And that was something that was just interesting to navigate, especially because I used to be like, oh, I'm just going through a dry spell right now. But then I'd walk out of the clinic, you know, having big like identity feelings and stuff so maybe that should have been an inkling yeah and I mean you're probably just the first person that she knows of I mean because that's also I think probably a lot of people just hide it because they don't want to have to explain themselves or educate their doctors or there isn't a box to tick for that or intersexual which is like like yeah (laughs) I can't imagine what that is like you know, even for, I, I know a lot of people just avoid general health care because they don't want to have those conversations or when you're, when you're sick or you need help, you don't want to be the one teaching the person who's supposed to be, you don't want to be the educator. Exactly. You want to be the baby. Yeah. You want them to tell <laughs> I just, you. Like, I just want you to fix my problem, damn it. <laughs> so, and then when it gets into anything like pelvic health related, like, we have to ask such intimate, specific questions. And it's like, I I think people just are like, I'm just going to ignore this issue. So you really started exploring this during the pandemic. Were there any resources that you found really helpful or books or, I mean, you're a librarian, so opening <laughs> Pandora's box here. Um, Definitely the Asexuality Visibility and Education Network was a great resource because you can kind of just like go on that website and like fall down so many rabbit holes and like hear mm-hmm. about, there's a lot of um, personal testimonies on that website, which was really helpful for me because like it does explore the huge expanse of what being an ace person can be. I found this woman, Yasmin Benoit. Um, I hope I'm pronouncing her name right. She's a British woman and she is very like a very sexy uh, dresser and she's very openly ace. And seeing her, I was just like, oh, okay, so I can be that and that's okay. (laughs) Like (laughs) being able to see people like myself and also um, my friend is currently dating a person who is very openly asexual and getting to talk to him and like his experiences. And he's like a very outgoing person. I think that there's, you know, I had a lot of stereotypes in my mind that like, oh, ace people like have to be introverted and they like, you know, 
just staying home all the time and no like my buddies my buddies dude parties and like mm-hmm. is a very gregarious person so I was like okay this is a role model like yeah <laughs> and just getting to see other people's experiences I guess like that was the main resource that helped me come to it um it's something that I've known about for a while because you know when you're a queer person you end up just like absorbing all of this information by osmosis I feel like yeah (laughs) but again like there's so many harmful negative stereotypes that I had to really dismantle that in my head is there any depiction of like ace people in like film or tv shows yet that are just allowed to be just regular characters where it's not the central focus. So Sex Education on Netflix actually has um, some ace characters. I think, I know there's one for sure. There might be more. I could be wrong. It's been a while since I've watched that. Um, And Bojack Horseman, hilariously enough, one of, um, I mean, Todd, which is Bojack's best friend, is asexual, canonically like saying it and just like, they show his sexuality journey from when he was younger into like being an adult. And that's one of the best representations I've seen about asexuality. Seeing that was also just like, okay, so we're not just like frumpy little nerds. <laughs> that, I mean, it reminds me of like how um, gay males were for so long depicted as like when weak and effeminate and the you know they had to be identified with the weaker sex being female um in order to not feel threatening and so that was like a big part of Tama Finland's work was just trying to show gay men being like strong and big and masculine and comfortable with themselves and it's like so I don't know I feel like when something's threatening they have to to when when something is threatening then the population gets depicted as being like less threatening if that makes sense it's like oh well they're that's not somebody I might accidentally hook up with anyways because they're ugly yeah and it's like you know you get it, it becomes like such a dehumanizing effect and it's like no like there's a bunch of people who are this type of person and everybody's experience is different just like with every other identity on the freaking planet you know it's just as random what type of body you end up with with your gender identity is like it's just random exactly yeah (laughs) like so how is dating for you are you dating now or like like now that you're more out like are how has that been for you? Is it kind of exhausting having to explain yourself? So I'm not actively dating. I haven't actively dated since 2019 because, again, it feels like work to me. And I don't think that's fair to, like, put on to some somebody else, like, that I would go on a date with. Like, no, this, is, this feels like a job to me. Um, I'm sure... I'm open to the idea of, cause like nothing's fixed. You know, if I happen to meet somebody and we click and I'm just like, yeah, I'm excited about this. Let's go. Like I have dated in the past. I have been in relationships in the past and have enjoyed them. But like, I, if it ends up just being like me and my cats for the rest of my life, I'm not sad about that. Like, I don't think that I'm missing anything. And that's just been like, 
that's been the difficult thing to explain to people because I have friends who are very well-meaning and they you know want their friends to be happy they want you know people to feel like comfortable and supported and everything but um I was having a conversation with one of my really close friends and she was like well you know it just it kind of makes me sad a little bit because like when like who do you have to like when you get good news who do you tell and I was like I tell you dummy right I tell a bunch of people and I the way that I see it is I put my platonic relationships on the same kind of like emotional fulfillment level as I would put a romantic relationship and like it even comes down to feelings like if I want to be somebody's friend like that feels like a crush to me like I can't separate the two. (laughs) I love that. That makes so much sense to me because I'm also like reading and thinking a lot about polyamory and but I love that I love the term you used earlier like pan romantic but just how it's it's so ridiculous to put like all your eggs in one basket and like expect some person to be your everything yeah like I mean one of the great things about my current relationship is my partner is like like I have my old punk guys that I like to dude out with and we like to go camping and sleep in the woods. And my boyfriend's like, he's so not into like going into the woods and sleeping in the woods. Like I'm, I have no interest in being less comfortable than I already am. So he lets me like, I just, I have like a special bond with those guys and I go out and like do that stuff with them. And then I have my best one of my best friends is a trans masculine person and we like love to go to hotels and like do spa days and we like stay in little boutique hotels in the desert and stuff together. And like, that's like my, that's like my vacation husband and like, you know, and, and it's, it's just life is so much easier if you just kind of see, see your relationships that way. And it's like, it's so beautiful too. Cause like you get to have this network of, you know, people that you love and care about, it spreads the love out and it doesn't put the onus on like anyone to be anyone's everything. Cause my God, how exhausting. You end up having more support. Cause then it's like, if you go through a breakup, it's like your whole world doesn't totally collapse, Mm -hmm. you know, whether you're in a relationship and that relationship allows you the space to maintain like really deep, intimate, like meaningful relationships with other people or whether that's sexual or not or whether you're you're single and you just are have several of those things around you like just you know multiple friendships and relationships that fulfill different things you're actually setting yourself up to be less lonely and less and more supported yeah like that's the thing that was another thing that I feel like I was scared of is like oh if you like if you're ace that means that you're just gonna be fucking lonely and it's like no it's not actually because like now I don't have to worry about like feeling like I'm missing something because I get to just like Mm -hmm. have all of my friends and all of my found family and you know nobody's put on a pedestal but also like it's nobody's put on a pedestal, but nobody feels lesser than either. Like, I love I love yeah. all of you as much as I would love somebody that like I would theoretically have a long term romantic relationship yeah, with. I feel that way, too. I feel that way, too. It's like I'm taking I'm planning a trip up north to like vi- spend time with a friend who's 
mom just passed away and like I'm plant, you know, there's people that I call and check in with regularly and yeah, it's yeah, hopefully that's the future we can get rid of. I don't know. Yeah, fuck the relationship escalator. Like, and also, like, I'm sure that you've been in your polyamory reading, like, you know, the idea that, like, something ending doesn't mean, like, it's failed. That's one thing that I have a main regret about, like, my big relationship is, like, it was a divorce. Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> even though we weren't legally married, like, you know, we had to split up the friend groups, like, everybody had to pick their fucking side. And like, it was explosive. And I just wish that like, I, we had both had the presence of mind to be able to be like, you know what, just because this ends doesn't mean like, it's failed. Yeah. And even we spent all of this time like in all of this emotional investment into it but if we had also been that enlightened I feel like it would have been a completely different relationship anyway that's true <laughs> yeah and if, if our sexuality and identities are fluid then you know we have to be open to things like passing yeah yeah I have a couple relationships that I look back on like very fondly and I'm like that was great for that time but then I was starting a new chapter in my life and that person wouldn't have fit in they just wouldn't have exactly so but I don't regret I don't like look at it as something that I that failed that's just excellent like (laughs) to be able to look at that time and be like yeah you know what that was great for that time and now we're not that time (laughs) oh my god and I keep thinking about horses talking about love like that's also something that I should have like realized early on that like no you care way more about your horse than you ever will like the stupid dumb boy that you're dating and you're letting him like take up all of your time like mistakes (laughs) I think we've talked about how like horses are like your like that's your first big love is are the horses yeah, and if you've had a horse or there's a horse you connect with at the barn that you ride every week or whatever, however hardcore you are with it. And like, I like, I have photo albums in my garage where like, there's like loads and loads of pictures with horses of horses and like horses with hearts drawn around their head Correct. and like their name <laughs> written like the way. And then I have, and then like, I don't know what grade and like, then there starts being yearbooks where yeah. I draw hearts <laughs> around the boy's head, just like the horse. But like, it literally like, it just switched off for me. Like the second I was a really late bloomer. So like by the time it really was like as soon as I made out with a boy, which was like on a truth or dare at a campground in Leo Creo, which is like sort of a bummer because it was like he, he was like dared to make out with me, which didn't feel good. But also, that's so classic SoCal though. Yeah, you're at Carpinteria <laughs> by the beach at a campfire and it was like a bunch of girls and then some other boys, like their parents took them camping and then we all found each other and played truth or dare and his name was Dusty and then... So we all basically, all we did with truth. He even has a horse name. This is like. <laughs> oh my God. And then I ended up giving him a hand job or trying to give him a hand job in the tent. But I know I kept like squeezing too hard and it was like hurting him. And then at some point his like gum came oh. out of his mouth and like ended up in my hair. So it was like, it was like the worst. Like we were trying to get the gum out of my hair. And like, I guess he didn't like my hand job because I was like, tr- I was trying really hard. So I was just squeezing really hard. <laughs> This is how 
how it works, right? I like. thought about horses after that. Like, I, I was just like, later Twix, like boys make out with me now. I'm done. And then I was thinking, there was a girl at, I hadn't thought about how romantic horse relationships were until there was this girl at CalArts. She did a video project where she edited, she made a montage and she edited all these romantic scenes between girls and horses or women and horses where they're kissing them and like their oh leg, God, they kick their yeah. leg up while they kiss the horse, like the old film style or like just caressing them I and totally like think, whispering to them. And it was just like, if you see it all cut together, it's like incredible. It's just like all this erotic love it's scenes. A <laughs> and then I realized that National Velvet had like, there's, I think that the scene where she's she gets injured and she can't ride and she's in bed and she makes she ties the little ropes to her toes and pretends like she's riding her horse. Oh wow, that just unlocked a huge memory. <laughs> it's a it's like a masturbation scene. Yeah. <laughs> she, she's going, "Oh, pie, pie." And she's like pretending to horseback ride in her bed. Because she just can't stand being away from her horse. It's a very, like, romantic thing. Like, it's erotic. I mean, like, there's the physical aspect of it, of, like, I'm 85% sure that, like, that's where my hymen went when I was probably very, very young. Just because I, like, I rode without a saddle a lot. And that's what happens. (laughs) Yeah. And, but, like... You know, it's such a romantic trope um, in media, like girls and horses, but it's also, it's so real, man. Like I had full on like conversations with the horse that I was connected to for my entire adolescence. And I told her before I was going to lose my virginity, um, which that's a whole other concept of what the fuck virginity is. Because <laughs> now that I look back at it, I'm just like, I don't know when that actually happened. <laughs> Wait, you told your horse when you wanted to lose your virginity? When, because I was, I was in this relationship um, from the time I was 14 until I was 21. Um, and I mm. was riding. For, I had this horse from when I was 11 on. And, you know, when I got this crush on this boy I told her and when you know I was ready I thought that I was ready to go all the way like I took her on a trail ride and I was like we gotta we gotta have this conversation first (laughs) I didn't tell my mom I didn't tell any of my friends but I told the horse (laughs) wow oh my god I should have pulled out I have I have a poem that I wrote (laughs) about my horse correct Oh God, it's so crazy. I re- and I read it in front of my class and it's like, uh, let's see if I can remember. Part of it was like, tail in the wind, a message he sends. Oh wow. That's rearing odd. on the rocks, so positive in thoughts. Unbridled freedom. I wish you could see him. <laughs> and then it, like, it's there's something about like right behind him. His, oh, he's graceful and quick and something and strong. Right behind him, his herd comes along. Ooh. And then it ends. The ending line is, I wish he were mine, but now he's gone. That's romantic. Like, that's a love poem. It was so <laughs> romantic. It was about being in love with a horse I couldn't afford to own. <laughs> like, that's I used to ride bad. a lot of rich people's horses for them and train them because they, they, they're not at the barn yeah. riding. So I would fall in love with these, like, beautiful, like, you know, 
super expensive. They're Unrequited love. <laughs> yeah. Napoleon, Napoleon moved to Florida. I was in love with this horse, Napoleon, and like this mean girl at my stables, her and her mom, like were moving to Florida and they actually like stole him and took and, and took him. Shade. Yeah. Wow. So I had a lot of like romantic drama with horses. <laughs> and then it just like stopped so abruptly though with like dating. So, and do you still ride at all? I or- don't. I was going to school in LA and my horse lived in Aguadulce and I was, you know, getting involved in like activities on campus and like figuring out what the hell I was doing with this stupid dumb relationship that I was in. And it like, there's only so many hours in the day. So I was like, okay, well Mm -hmm. she needs to like, I still love her, but she deserves to be ridden. So Um, That's when I asked my friend who I had bought her from originally um, if there was any, you know, if anyone was interested in like leasing her and riding her or if there was any programs that she knew about. And that was when um, she told me about there's I know that you said that you had um, like worked for them or something for a little bit. There's the equine therapy. Right. Right on. Yeah. Right on. And my horse she was a norwegian fjord she's beautiful um she's the one that i have tattooed on my thigh such a rad tattoo it's like it's so hardcore it's like huge horse head and it's really well um (laughs) but so she was a little bit stubborn because fjords are like that but the thing is is like she didn't go very fast so they figured like okay this is probably good for like equine therapy So she was there for a little bit, but then I, that's when I started studying abroad in Australia and I get a call from my mom saying, Hey, Signe, that was my horse's name. Her name was Signe. She's really, really sick. We're thinking that it's time. She was back with my friend when she finally passed away. And it was good because like, I I know that my friend had a really deep connection with her when she sold her to me. And then when I started like um, leasing a spot at her barn, she was like, okay, then I still get to have time like with this horse as well. I said my friend, she was like, I was 14 and she was like 25. (laughs) But like, you know how things are with ranch culture. Like, Oh my God, my ranch culture. That's how I got involved with queer communities was my parents were pretty like checked out and um, just more than happy to leave me at the horse barn after school every day and then pick me up at like eight o'clock at night and then drop me off at like, because that's what you did. yeah, it was there 8am <laughs> till 8pm. 8 and then I was there full time pretty much. And then my horse trainer was a gay man and he kind of ended he actually ended up like fostering me during my parents divorce and like because we didn't have a lot of money my mom went back to working um or she she had a business in uh location management and film so she like wasn't home a lot Mm -hmm. so and his name was dyke which i still i I didn't i don't know why his name was dyke but he was a gay man named dyke from canada i love that (laughs) (laughs) yeah and he he kind of just got stuck with me but like he j- I, I I lived with him off and on and he lived at our house off and on and um and then the assistant trainer her name was Cheryl and she was like super butch lesbian and so Ugh. like that's that was like kind of my family growing up and like I didn't it, it so I don't remember like having a moment where I like 
someone explained to me what what it meant to be gay it was just kind of always there that's so beautiful like that and that's so important too is like just to have people around you growing up that are queer and it just like is a normal part of life I know that so many people don't get to have that and I feel like it's getting to be more and more common yeah and like of course you were hanging around like like the gay man from Canada of course like your horse trainer was this like stone butch like it's not something that's ever that should be seen as like oh non-normative because yeah like I grew up kind of similarly admittedly my dad's side of the family um comes from a little bit more of a conservative background but my parents uh, met doing a drum and bugle corps because I'm also a band kid and can, in addition to being a horse girl, <laughs> um, I was doomed from day one. <laughs> but um, so they met doing drum and bugle corps and my dad was a snare drummer. My mom uh, was in the color guard. And so what happens in drum and bugle corps is there's just like a lot of queerness, especially in the color guard, like it's not a hard and fast rule, but a lot of gay men are attracted to the color guard life. So growing up, I always had, you know, their found family that I would call like my aunts and uncles that weren't related to me that was queer. And it was always just like, yes, of course, your uncle Paul has a boyfriend. Like, it is mm -hmm. what it is. And so I, I never felt the need to like, formally come out to my parents because I was just like well it just is what it is like okay like yeah. I'm in this certain relationship right now but like I only I only feel like I need to come out to someone if I feel like they're fragile and they can't handle it mm -hmm. and everybody else is just like oh yeah I'm just gonna like drop this part of myself you know casually because it's it just is what it is, you know? Which is how it should be. Yeah. 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 I think I've only formally come out to one person and it didn't go well. <laughs> so. Yeah. Actually, my parents, like, we we don't really, well, I don't talk to my dad, but my mom, I we were drunk and I tried to come out to her and she was just like, you're just, it's just trendy right now. And I wasn't even trying to come out as pansexual. I'm like, let's start with bisexual before I tell her I like also hook up with like trans people and stuff like yeah like let's you know start with the one that media knows and then <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah she was just like basically dismissed it but it's interesting she also but at the same time she also like comes and hangs out at the Tama Finland Foundation and we spend Thanksgiving dinners there and stuff so it's just like okay just don't talk about my sex life with my mom which is actually fine like she kind of knows there's Fair. weird stuff or like she knows there's kinky stuff going on, but doesn't, um, I, I mean, like I lived with her while I was a bondage and fetish model and I'm sure she's like, <laughs> but it's like kind of like, just don't, don't ask, don't tell kind of situation, yeah. which is fine. God, Especially that's the age. worst like feeling though. Cause I also got the like, Oh, it's just trendy right now. I'm just like, yeah. If you knew anything about me, you would know that I'm a big ass contrarian and I've never done anything because it's trendy. So yeah. like, and it's yeah. like, no, I'm not, none of us are doing this because it's like some fun fad. 
Yeah. And if you're coming out, if you're in a situation where you're having to come out, then that's automatically uncomfortable or indicator that there is something to come out about or there's something Mm -hmm. uncomfortable, like someone's uncomfortable. So it's never. Yeah. And like, I can't, I can't remember a time where I had a preference. Like I was just horny. Like, and I was just like, I like this, I like that. And like, I actually used to, when I kind of thought I was a les like liked I didn't even know the word lesbian before when I thought I was a lesbian but I thought I liked girls before or differently than I liked boys and um yeah. and then like I was uh, like a little more sexually attracted to girls and like romantically att- attracted to boys and then mm-hmm. I remember when I saw like I can't remember if it was like Sally Jesse Raphael or like when those shows started having like club kids and like drag queens on them yeah (laughs) I was like what the fuck like I was so (laughs) into it I was like wait like you can have boobs and a dick or like that person with like all that makeup on like you know I was just like everything was like all mixed up and it was like the most exciting thing ever to me and I used to I used to fake sick to stay home from school to what if I saw there was going to be an episode like that because I was so excited so, um, but I, like you, I didn't have, yeah. pan, we didn't say pansexual when I was in high school, it was bisexual, but I always hated that term. Cause I was like, I don't know what this means, but like, when I see like people, like men dress like women, like I'm really attracted to that too. Or like, I feel like, yeah, like it's, it's not, it was never binary for me either. So. And like, you know, bisexuality as a term, like has had an evolution, like it, like pan is not like one of my favorite phrases that I have stolen from I can't even remember now is like pan is not like woke by but like it's just whatever word like feels right for you you know like I have yeah. bisexual friends who use the term bisexual to mean like one or more or like two or more genders mm-hmm. um but you know, it's just really about like just figuring out like what label feels comfy. And if no labels feel comfy, like, you know, some people find yeah. a lot of security having a lot of words for them and some people don't. And like, it's all, it's all okay. Like neither one is like the right way to be a queer person. I agree. And I, yeah. And that's why queer is a great term too. And I kind of like how ambiguous it is. Like, am I saying queer to mean my sexuality, my gender? Who's to say? Yeah, yeah. And it can mean, I don't know. Like, I also think of, like, queerness. Like, the actual definition is to be, like, odd or different. So, like, my partner is heterosexual, but he's also, like, he's also, like, I don't know. Like, on our first date, we were, he was, like, we were talking about high school and like growing up and stuff and he and I asked him something like oh did you get bullied and he was like I'm a black man who had I was a black kid with like a red mohawk who had Tourette's and my name was song sanctuary riddle and I was like obsessed with star wars like of course I got bullied and I'm like I don't know I see him as kind of queer and his you know because because he's neurodivergent and he's he's having a very like different experience in this world like you know with his identity and so I was like you're kind of queer like and he and he's like oh I hadn't really thought about it but um it doesn't even have to be like what 
people are so focused on the sex. It's like the people who are judgmental are the ones that are obsessed with like the sex part. It's interesting. Yeah. (laughs) Do you want to talk about belly dance at all? Sure. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, belly dance is for me has been like a really important aspect of like connecting with my body and my own sexual my my sexuality and a lot of things and how I relate to people and I don't know it's like yeah like how did how what's your story with belly dance I guess how did you find it and what does it mean to you yeah I was as you were saying this I was just like oh crap we haven't shared our origin stories with each other have we like (laughs) we've been dancing (laughs) together for two years and like I feel like at a certain point like everyone just like kind of knows everyone's you know superhero origin or whatever but yeah, so um, I've danced on and off uh, throughout my adolescence. I took like baby ballet lessons, decided that wasn't for me. I was involved in the marching arts when I was in high school. Um, I played the saxophone um, in the marching band and I was great. Um, but my best friend was in the color guard and she was always like, you should do winter guard with me because it was like, okay, marching band is in the fall with like football and blah, blah, blah. And then in winter and spring, um, there's indoor color guard. And so that was my first time really like exploring the world of dance. Um, And it was really hard. I was not good. (laughs) Um, But I really enjoyed it. And my college that I went to, um, Occidental in Northeast LA, their biggest club on campus is called Dance Production. And every year it's... um, It is what it sounds like on the tin, but it's student-led, and it's a big uh, performance by student choreographers and students, uh, student performers. And the nice thing about that is that while they have, like, an open, they call it an audition, but it's really not, like, anyone can join. You don't need to have any experience or training or anything. And so I loved that when I got to go and see that. Um, So I decided when I was there that that's what I, that's who I wanted to be. I wanted to be a dance pro bitch. And it was really great because I got to try out a bunch of different styles of dance. I did contemporary, I did hip hop. My best buddy is from Hawaii and every year there would be a hula piece so I got to do that. I got to do burlesque. It was really great. But my one big regret is that I did not do the belly dance piece my senior year. I knew the woman who was choreographing it. And I, for some reason, because you could only be in a max of three pieces because, you know, quick changes suck ass. For some yeah. reason, I was like, no, I want to do like this piece done by like two choreographers choreographers I've had before I know I know their style I want to be in their piece um their piece that you're sucked I should have done the belly dance piece (laughs) (laughs) and so but then I graduated and I was like okay well this is the end of that and I was in grad school in Wisconsin I went to school at UW-Madison to get my MLIS and I was recovering from my eating disorder I was depressed I was in grad school, so it just sucked on, sucked on, sucked on, sucked. Mm. And I was like, I was uh, finally seeing a therapist for the first time in my entire life. And she's like, you know, you should have something to do that's just for yourself. That's not just school and work and, 
focusing on like body stuff and I was like okay what did I once like back when I liked things (laughs) and I was like well the one time that I felt like I was having a good time in college was when I was in dance pro so okay we're gonna go and find ourselves a little dance class to go and take so I get on the Groupon website and wouldn't you know there's a Groupon for belly dance classes and I was like okay universe I hear you so I took myself to my first belly dance class at Dance Life in Madison, Wisconsin, and the woman who runs it, Ariel Juliet, is fantastic. And so like we had our little intro class and at the end she always does a little like performance for the first class students so that way they can see like you know if you study and practice this is what you can get to do. And she is a larger woman and she made her belly button disappear. (laughs) And I was Mm -hmm. enamored. And that was the moment where I was like, you can't like hate the fat on your body if you want to be able to do this. Like you need to like get in touch with your body if you want to be able to dance like this. And I was all fucking in that studio helped me so much in my personal sense of self in my recovery um and ever since uh that time they have become like more and more explicitly like this is a fat positive space like we're not about Mm. like body shaming which i now realize as i've talked to other people who've had different paths into belly dance like i was spoiled as fuck (laughs) Because it's, mm-hmm. I feel like that it, it's starting to happen more, um, but never as like expressly, you know, said like, no, this is a fat positive, like body neutral space to be in. Um, yeah, so I went all into classes. Um, that was what I did outside of um, like work and school and therapy, um, and it just. It brought me so much joy. I felt like I was back in my body for the first time since I was a little kid, you know, because my adolescence was always in this like crappy pants relationship that made me feel disgusting. Um, And I just did not want to think about my body at all. And by getting in tune with what was happening with my muscles and with my skeleton and what I could do and what was hard that really just brought me back to myself. Um, So when I graduated um, and I moved back to LA, the first thing I did was find a belly dance studio. And I was so glad that I found Dance Garden. I was staying with a couple friends at the time in Glendale and I was unemployed. I was still searching for jobs. Um, And I was like, I need, I need one thing that is going to, make life worthwhile so we're gonna go on the Groupon website again see if there's belly dance classes and now I was like I was so involved with dance garden stuff I still am um even though it's kind of changed and become more of a like hosting platform for things um 
but yeah, so that's that's my origin story as I learned how to belly dance in Madison, yeah. Wisconsin from a plus size woman who made her belly button disappear. That's a great one. What's your story? I realize I I don't know yours. I think let's see. I was into crust punk and hanging out in Oakland as much as I could and just getting into really dysfunctional relationships and had graduated high school. I went straight into junior college because there was no, not even a discussion about if I would go to college or what I would be like. That was all focused on my brother. I I don't, because I was the girl or whatever. Classic. Yeah. Nobody really seemed too concerned, but it was just like, just go to, go to junior college and take foundation courses and we'll figure something out for you. Or, you know, my dad was more interested in just me looking better so I could find a husband that would take care of me. So he was really angry about my tattoos because it like apparently lowered my value or opportunities in life. Like you're a cow. (laughs) Yeah. So I had stopped using hard drugs and was just trying to focus on school. And I was at Park College, which is a junior college. At the time, it was like $12 a unit. So it wasn't wasting my parents' money. And it's like $36 a class. And I saw this like, I saw this flyer for like free belly dance classes. And I was like, oh my God, like that. It looked so, I thought it would be so cool. And I hadn't really danced. I'd always wanted to dance, but I was too insecure to go to classes by myself. I dropped out of ballet when I was like, I was in ballet class. I loved it. I went with my best friend, Brooke Hudson. And so she stopped wanting to go. I didn't want to go by myself because I was too shy. And I remember my mom stopping me and being like, are you sure you're not quitting? Because Brooke's quitting. And I remember on the inside, I was screaming like, I love ballet and I want to dance. But I was like, I lied to my mom and I was just like, oh, oh, I've always regretted that. But then I'm like, ugh, like I might have ended up with crazy joint problems and an eating disorder and like all that, you know, it's like maybe it's better. I found dance again later in a different context because belly dance is, I like to say, for everybody, like all body types. And then what was happening was like, I, I still need to, I've been thinking I need to reach out to this woman, Jan Straka, who was organizing it, but they just needed bodies. It was, I think it was connected to the Middle Eastern ensemble that we saw perform. Like there was some connection there. And gotcha. it was a group called NEMA. It was like Near Eastern Middle Cultural Association. And they were producing a show and they had all these choreographies and they needed people to learn them. So I would just mm-hmm. come to this to the the studio on campus and and then they would like they had a Persian choreographer come in and teach us a Persian dance. And then there was, there was a um, Turkish woman who was assisting. Her name was Baron and she was like from Turkey. And like, she taught us like a dance with like tambourines. And then I learned a dance with candles. And I learned the first thing I ever learned to play on the finger symbols was Karshlama. And then like, I, so I was just learning these dances, but I didn't know how to dance at all. And I had no foundation for belly dance, but I was like, in love with the music and love with the costumes like I was just like I wanted more but it was really hard to find more at that time and then we had we put on the show and I only got like put put into like one or two pieces because I just wasn't very good but um it was still really exciting I was on a big stage at Moorpark College and then um they Alexandra King had come in and taught us a sword choreography which was like the coolest thing ever so I I got to work with her a little and then she was like the star of the show and she came out and danced 
live and I was watching her in the wings. And so I always say like, I lost my belly dance. I lost my virginity to her, my belly dance virginity to her. Cause like, that was the first time I saw like a full on belly dance performance. And it just, she was Mm -hmm. fucking wailing on her finger symbols and she was using veils and she like, she had these heavy coin, you know, the old cost less coins. And she was like writhing on the floor and she was so powerful and so sexy and so but just like a badass and like so musical and like strong and I was like what the fuck like I like I just lost my mind and so I went home like internet was different then so like this was like (laughs) this is 1997 because I know because I have the video that I'm you're gonna transfer for me so it was 1997 it says on the video there was one website called pinkgypsy.com Okay, funnily enough, my friend's buddy, his grandma ran that. And we, like, (gasps) met each other at a party. Was she a belly dancer? Yeah. What's her name? I cannot remember. I wonder. I mean, like, I would have gotten, like, her, how her grandson calls her. (laughs) Yeah, so I went through every teacher. So the first class I went to, I think, was. Uh, Anissa School of Dance and they were doing like modern Egyptian and old Egyptian Mm -hmm. and I was like what's going on I'm like where's that where are the finger symbol thingies and where's the veils and when are we going to get on the floor and like why is everything so tight and controlled like I want to like I wanted to just be like juicy and loose and like sensual and it felt it felt like Mm -hmm. very different than I was like okay like nobody told me I had no way of knowing there were other styles of belly dance I thought there was just belly dance and I was it's like it's all the same thing yeah yeah and then I just kept going through all the teachers on the list and then like I found Ansuya and I really loved her class so I went to some of that but it was like all the way in Santa Monica and I lived in the valley and then I found That's I did a, a little bit with Aisha Ali which was more um, historical and folkloric and stuff like that but that was interesting yeah. to me I was like okay like bookmark this I like this but it's not what I'm looking for. But like, I would go to some of her classes because I was like really, and she was like teaching us about the history and the origins and bringing like things that she had brought back from Egypt with her. And like, so I was like, okay, like this is where I can get some like education. But um, like, and then I found, found Diane Weber and I went to her and she made me do a phone interview before I came to her class like I emailed her I guess and then she was like well I don't let anyone into my class so I had to like she had to know that I was passionate and I was committed and I would be there every week and like practice and then you had to do you had to do a live improv every month and you had to be willing to do that and so yeah. I was like, cool, like, because I was serious about learning. And so I was like, this is the serious teacher that I want. Like, I'm, this isn't mm-hmm. like a hobby or a cardio thing for me. Like, I want to learn. And so I started, her, she was teaching at a place called Parsart Center, which this man, Nazame, who was a famous ballet choreographer in Iran and then had to leave Iran for political reasons, created this cultural center in the valley and um she and Anahid both had classes there and then they had cafe belly there which is where they had belly dance um shows i cataloged some of the cafe belly videos <laughs> and sometimes i just watch them because i'm Anahid with her butt pops yeah so i started studying with diane and i was like she was everything to me like and she was like i feel like 
obviously had a big influence on me because she was a legal librarian by day and then she was Mm -hmm. a pinup model she modeled for like bunny yeager and she was like an open um openly you know um polyamorous with her husband they were or they called themselves swingers at the time and she was she identified as like a nude a naturalist or nudist so it was like this lady is like all the things I want to be and I pretty much did follow her path like I became a fetish and bondage and like pinup model and I became I went to library school and then her and then she told me like you know her class once a week wasn't enough for me so then she had me go to Anahid's class so Anahid was her protege and um yeah. And so I studied with Diane and Anahid and um and Anahid was also a librarian and <laughs> there we could do a whole episode on belly dancing librarians and there's so many more of us. There's also like a bunch in um I want to say Indiana. Oh. Like I met somebody like through library Twitter and like I was just like oh they're also like a queer person and a, a librarian so you know you like fucking follow each other and shit and then they posted something about their zills and I was like wait hang on wow. you know <laughs> so yeah. yeah I've interviewed a couple and like I there used to be like a web page belly dancing librarians or something that's eight. right you sent it to me so yeah and then I just I was just really what I for listeners who don't know what I what I had fallen in love with is called American Cabaret belly dance which at the time was not or I don't know I I don't keep up with what's cool that's just always what I've been into and um Egyptian style was much more popular at that time especially so um there were just a handful of AMCAB teachers around and then I found Linda Ehring who's who was up in Simi Valley she's passed away but she was um she was one of Diane's um students too and a really really good teacher who I don't think is as well known as she should be. She had a little troupe called Jewels in the Nile and they played finger symbols and did veils and all the stuff. So yeah, so that's my origin story. And then and then <laughs> and then I was like Anahid was doing evening of experimental Middle Eastern dance, which is a little problematic now. <laughs> I've seen some of those videos too. Um but I was maybe yeah. in some of those. <laughs> she gave me free classes for like being a stagehand in that. Um, just picking people's stuff up. And then I met Alisa, who mm. is Jenza's daughter, who's Alisa's like a third generation belly dancer. And like we, our eyes met and we were just like, we had a major connection. And then she was in Desert Sin, which does experimental stuff. And I was a goth, mm-hmm. like punk kid. So she just like kind of invited me into the troupe before realizing like I really wasn't a very good dancer <laughs> like I was okay learn by learn by trial <laughs> I was in desert sim but I man did I struggle um because I just didn't have the training what I like yeah. about belly the amcab style is it was improv so I didn't have to think about remembering where I'm gonna step or what yeah. I'm gonna do next so I'm I'm in that rare category where I actually think improv is much easier than choreography so I feel like you know that's that's such a good skill to have and like even if you are a choreographer like how do you choreograph you have to improvise first yeah and Diane I mean Diane would make us every it was like something like the first whatever of the month and you'd have to put your costume on you bring your costume and then you wouldn't know what cassette tape the cassette tapes were recorded 
they were recorded from records from like George Abdo and Eddie Koshak and people like that. So it was recorded oh, yeah. cassette tapes from, recorded from out record albums. And then she had different mixes and you would never know what she's going to put on. And it was a full set. You had to do an entrance, mm-hmm. a like talk seam, and then um, a little maybe in between and then the floor work. And then you had to do your exit and like, so it was a full length routine. Oh, and veil. And you had to play finger symbols yeah. and you weren't allowed to take your finger symbols off. And, um, and you just improvised in front of the group. And then they critique, she critique everything from like your finger symbol playing, your musicality, your costume, your makeup. Like it was brutal. <laughs> it's, it's, it sounds brutal, but also like, I don't know. I feel like we need a little bit more because I love the belly dance community right now. It's so supportive. Everybody's really sweet. But I'm also just like, tell me when I'm doing something wrong, please. <laughs> I like it. I, I didn't mind it. And I'm I'm more by nature a sub, like I'm more submissive. So I kind of liked it. Like I was just like, tell me, tell me what I did wrong. Step like, on my neck, you know, Diane gorgeous, like, Icon, like criticize me. Like I didn't mind it really <laughs> so much. Same thing. I was like, I don't tell me like to me, it was that's brilliant. Like, let's do this in the classroom before I go out on stage and like don't know that I'm doing some weird thing with my elbow that I was totally unconscious of. Like, let's fix it. It's always so interesting, too, to talk to people who also really learn how to dance as adults, because like it's a different experience when, you know, like, yeah, I did baby ballet, but like I didn't have formal training and like I still don't really have formal training. I took ballet classes in college, but like I was never like that was never my foundation. And it's really a different experience when you talk to somebody who also like no didn't have formal training. Um, you know, had to learn this as an adult versus the people who were just like, oh yeah, I was always like in jazz classes as a kid, and I've been performing since I was seven years old, and blah blah blah. Because, yeah, just the Diane. the learning curve is different. Yeah, and Diane used to say, she said, I mean, she said a lot of, like, snarky things. But one of the things she used to say is, like, her ba- people she had who were classically trained in ballet and jazz were her worst students. She'd be like, they, they, they're too frigid and they can't, they can't, like, sink into the music. Like, they can't feel the music in the same way. And they're thinking too much and they're too controlled and they can't just ooze into the dance and yeah because the western tradition is so counter to what you learn in belly dance rock sharky world (laughs) and yeah and so I think anyone you can jump into like let's push belly dance for everybody because I'm going to be teaching a belly dance for everybody workshop and like we're going to make that part of the nonprofit. so it's like you can really what I love about belly dance is like you can jump into it at any age, any body mm-hmm. type. People will always be like, I'm too skinny or I'm too fat. Like, no. No. Nope. I mean, <laughs> I can send you t- all kinds of videos and any gender. Mm-hmm. It's like anybody can belly dance. And like, that's what I love about it. It's like ballet. That's also another reason I'm glad I left ballet is I probably would have gotten too tall and my boobs would have gotten too big and my shoulders are wide and I would have had some like body issues because I didn't fit that cookie cutter but belly dance we don't have that I mean look at us we're in the same troop and like uh, we're we're totally different sizes and exactly um, I'm I'm tall and you're short and you just go in the front and I go in the back (laughs) and it works it looks gorgeous we just make different 
patterns with our like formations like yeah and that's the thing like I I think I got this from Helena and she was like the thing about belly dance is like everyone is going to have something that they're really really good at in this dance like maybe you're like a hands person or maybe you like do the most beautiful shoulder shimmies or like you know your hip drops are really great like they're they're every bit of the body is used in this dance and it's all for everyone and it's also the first time that i felt like my body was finally like okay because in western classes i was the little fat one and like i'm straight size i'm short i have an ass but like you know there's only a certain type of body that's privileged in western dances and when i got into belly dance i was just like oh finally like this is something that like can work with me because there's something for everyone in it. Yes. Yes. I love that we're ending on an ad for belly dance. So, and you're always, <laughs> you're such a good dancer. I love watching you dance and I feel so lucky to be in a troupe with you. And every time I see you, I'm like, oh, I need to go home and practice. Like, <laughs> so. Oh my gosh, you're too kind. I just have a good time. I hope other people have a good time too. It shows. It shows. All right. Well, I know you have to go. So thanks for being one of my early interviews. Thanks for having me. I'm honored, honestly. And I'm so excited for what you're doing with Health Query and with Pelvic Sanctuary. I, ever since you started this project, like you just, every time I see you, you just like glow more and more. So I'm, I'm really happy that you're on this journey. Thank you. Thank you so much. I really appreciate this. Enjoy the rest of your Saturday. Bye me again thank you for taking the time to tune into another episode of health query i hope you are enjoying your pride month so far and rallying to support your favorite organizations if you have not already heard my brand new nonprofit pelvic sanctuary could really use your support with our community programming and our startup expenses please show your support of sexual and pelvic health for LGBTQIA folks by donating to our Pride Month campaign. Head over to pelvicsanctuary.org to learn more and support us with a tax-deductible gift today. Thank you for listening and make sure to subscribe wherever you're listening to catch the next episode. 